Welcome to Corrosion Chronicles, an original podcast series produced by the Materials Technology Institute. I'm Heather Elaine, the Executive Director of MTI, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Cook, Materials Specialist with the Dow Chemical Company. Hey, Mark. Hey, how are you doing, Heather? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. You ready for Christmas? We are getting ready for Christmas. What about you? Are your kids coming home? Got an exciting Christmas where we're, we're going out to Denver for my wife's family, and my oldest daughter is bringing her boyfriend to meet the rest of the family. So oh, yeah, that's it's a, a pretty step. big, exciting <laughs> step. I know. I know. Looking forward to it. My daughter was supposed to get home in a week, and instead she surprised me and showed up last night for my birthday. So it was- Oh, how cool. She's home already, and it's going to be great to have a little extra time with her over Christmas. Yeah, that's awesome. But I'm just looking forward to it being a better Christmas than last year. I'm positive it will be. <laughs> Not going to break anything? Yeah. If you remember last year, I, we all went ice skating as a family down in Boston at this really fabulous public garden ice skate arena outdoors. And I fell and broke both arms simultaneously. And so I spent Christmas with two broken arms last year. And I'm pretty sure this year is going to be better than that one was. <laughs> Let's hope so. Went down in history as the worst Christmas yet. <laughs> We're here today with Jay Schickling, Senior Principal Consultant at Comores. Jay has a BS in Ceramic Engineering and a Master's in Ceramic Science, both from Penn State University. He worked for Babcock and Wilcox, building nuclear reactors for the U.S. Navy for five years. Then he worked for St. Gobain in Massachusetts as an R&D engineer specializing in refractories for waste incineration. Since then, he's been with DuPont and then Comores, as that company has morphed, and he's been the primary ceramics and refractories consulting engineer for about 23 and a half years. Jay is just an absolute expert in this field, and he's really unique. There are not many chemical process companies that have a ceramics and refractory expert, especially of the caliber of Jay Schickling. He's really the unicorn in this industry working for a manufacturing company. So he has a lot of tremendous experience and a really great perspective on engineering on how to apply these types of materials in chemical process industry. So really happy to have you with us today, Jay. It's great to have you as a guest. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks. I'll go ahead and start. So Jay, we talked a little bit before this about a desire to keep the scope simple. I, I think it's my thought process was a lot of people deal with refractory lined equipment, but most people don't go very deep. And so I didn't want to boil the ocean and, and try to cover every aspect of refractory. I know you're capable of doing that, but I'm trying to save the listener here. And <laughs> let's keep it a little bit superficial so that we can just cover the the concepts and have something that, that people can have some takeaways from. So my proposal was, let's talk about process heaters. I, I think that's about as simple of a unit as you can get. It's also fairly ubiquitous. Most plants are going to have a process heater of some sort where they're firing gas and, and that kind of stuff. So could you describe a typical process heater in your mind just to kick it off? So I've dealt with multiple configurations of process heaters. You can have the simple vertical where you can either have a, an up-fired or a down-fired. There's the horizontal heaters. So burner on one end, gas exit on the opposite end. I've even worked with L-shaped heaters before. So for space considerations or process considerations, you can find L-shaped heaters and they can get more fancy from there. You can get with a lot of the low NOx burner type situations because a lot of companies- you know, let's, are... let's keep it simple. <laughs> I think I'm just going to say with a lot of the new burner technologies coming in, You'll sometimes see secondary or even tertiary air inlets that are coming in tangentially. Yeah, I don't, want to go, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Let's keep it set <laughs> up. It's just, We're it's not going to go basic, down that road. Just a basic outer or something. Yeah. Okay, so for a yeah. basic process heater, what temperatures are we talking about? I've seen anywhere from, usually you're talking about somewhere around 900 to 1100 degrees Celsius. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so... Talking about a unit like that, why do we need the refractory? We've got metal inside the unit, right? You've got a metal burner. You've got usually some tubes to exchange heat. Why isn't the unit just metal? So a lot of times what we use the refractories for, a uh, couple of possibilities there. Thermal protection, because the metals typically are not robust at those operating temperatures. So either from a corrosion standpoint or a thermal standpoint, the metal will degrade at the operating temperatures and we can put refractory linings inside to increase the operating temperature inside 
and protect the shell at the same time. The other application would be potentially for wear resistance. So if you have a gas stream that has particulates in it that could wear on the metal surface, then we'll put a uh, refractory lining in to give it a little bit more robustness from wear. Yeah. So we're insulating on the inside instead of the outside. Correct. Solves a lot of problems, really. In, in my world, an optimally designed furnace or heater would have all of the insulation on the inside and you only resort to putting the insulation on the outside for specialty applications, acid dew point corrosion resistance or something where you have to run a hot shell. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it can actually be harmful if people go and put insulation on the outside, can't it? Yes, absolutely. You could, you run a, an extreme risk of overeating your shell. I've seen that. I don't want to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with what I would consider a very basic, simple unit, like an upfire cylindrical unit. So we typically have a flat floor, right? With the burner coming up through the center of the floor. In that case, what kind of refractory would you expect to see on the floor? So depending on whether there's any risk for flame impingement, You'll see refractories that are, in the case of a brick lining, you'll see bricks that are temperature rated for the flame. So the burner itself may have bricks lining the flame chamber. If there's a wind box or something like that on the burner, you'll see typically high alumina. And high alumina in my world typically means 90 plus percent aluminum oxide. You might also see castable linings or gunite, which I think we'll probably get to later in this conversation. Again, in the same chemistry ranges. For the floor itself, depending on the operating temperature, if it's just a simple heater where all you're doing is air preheating, typically I might even just line that with insulating fire bricks. Insulating fire bricks, or IFB for short, are basically just bricks, but they have a lot of porosity in them. So they have a high insulating value and you can get them in a range of chemistries, again, depending on the environment and depending on the amount of heat transfer you want through there. So there's, they're customizable there. You can really customize the heat flow through the bricks into the shell. What are some general applications here that we're talking about? Can you just give me context? We're using natural gas to heat air or are we burning things to react them? If it's a simple up-fired heater, you're probably just using natural gas to heat air. You take that hot air and it goes into another part of the process that requires a preheated air or something like that. Or you'll see these units that have, as Mark mentioned, that have tubes going through them. And you might have a gas or a chemical inside those tubes that needs to be heated to make it more reactive or process it in some way. And so you can use a heater like this to heat those tubes up. It's just a very basic refractory line piece of equipment because you're not really dealing with any aggressive chemistry of any sort. It's fairly low temperature for right. our unit. So that, that was, I just thought it was the simplest type of unit to, to talk about, to keep from getting too done too many rabbit holes. Yeah. I, I am curious, how would that differ from an incinerator though? Which we've got incinerators everywhere and that's becoming right. a major solution for dealing with our ridiculous quantities of trash and also energy production. So incinerators, you've got three types of waste streams that you can deal with, solid, liquid, and gas. For a, a gas incinerator or liquid incinerator where you inject an atomized liquid, which basically becomes a gas, you're going to have to be mindful of the potential for corrosion of the bricks because not only are the metals susceptible to corrosion, but the bricks are as well. So you're going to have to carefully select the chemistry of the brick to resist any potential attack from the chemical that you're trying to burn. The solids incinerators are a little bit different because you're dumping the solids in. They're, they're much more complicated designs. I probably shouldn't go down that rabbit hole there. Okay. And they just had to take the lid off that can of worms. No, no, I'm, I'm trying to pull it back, Mark. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. In the line here. I do want to add incinerators, you have the added element of ash buildup. So you've got ash flowing through there too, which is abrasive. So getting back to the fired heater, we talked about the, the floor and you, and you said that could be castable or loose laid brick or something like that. What about the walls? What would you typically see on the wall for a very simple heater like this? So in, in my world, the simplest configuration is a, is a vertical cylinder with a flat bottom. Yep. And a vertical cylinder, I'm looking at a wedge-shaped or arch-shaped brick. So a brick that has 
the taper on on it so the the back face of the brick is wider than the front face so when you put them side by side they create a circle and you can build the circle all the way up the shell and you might have multiple layers there if the operating conditions are such that you need a more dense brick on the operating face and you can put an insulating brick behind that or there are other options you can put insulating castable behind a brick or I don't like to do it, but you can put ceramic fiber behind the brick as well. The advantage of this is that with the keyed construction of these bricks, you get a very high compressive strength and a, a robust lining. And so the bricks, when you talk about the bricks being tapered so that it forms a ring, they're all keyed in place. How are the bricks oriented? If you've got a nine inch by four and a half inch by three inch brick, like how tall is that course? That again, that's going to depend on your heat transfer needs for the shell. So if I need to put in a, a nine inch thick lining, I might have the nine inch direction going radially, but I could also get a nine by nine brick. So yeah. I could put in a nine, nine inch radial with a four and a half inch high. Remember, we're talking about our 1100 degrees C fired heater. Right. I And I would probably put nine inches of refractory in that, but I could do that possibly with two layers of four and a half of dense brick and four and a half of insulating brick. So it's a typical radius and height for these things. Oh, that's going to be process specific, but I I think I've seen little tiny units as, as small as three feet in diameter. Basically, it's a fire duct. And I've seen process heaters that have been as much as 10 or 12 feet in diameter. Wow. And then how high? go bigger than that for other process vessels, but just for a simple heater. How high? Oh, typically just for simple heaters, you're looking at maybe 12 to 20 feet tall. Okay. I mean, that three foot diameter one, like you can't get in there though. If this is... No, you can't. So how do you even get the bricks in? No, you you don't use bricks in those. You actually use castable or gun. You can't do gunite. You have to use castable in those. Yeah. So you'd put a form in it and you'd pour it. So is some of the size of these vessels driven by the standard sizes of bricks and what's available and like it needs to be big enough to get in there and work in it and move around? That's an interesting question because a lot of times the bricks are an afterthought. Somebody goes off and designs a vessel that the process needs. I've actually had circumstances where they've gone and bought the vessel and come back at me and said, Oh, I need to put a refractory lining in this. And you, I, I can give you uh, one inch of thickness to cut the heat down. And I'll look at them and say, I, it's impossible. You can't, you can't do it. It doesn't work um, like that. So a lot, typically the, the vessel size is determined by the process needs, but I encourage people to take the refractory thickness into consideration before you size your vessel. I want to mention one thing about what Heather just asked, and and you can definitely add to it and correct me, but uh, like when they're trying to make a a circle out of bricks, there are standard shapes. There's like a a number one wedge, a number two wedge, a number three wedge. And so they'll look at it and they'll go, okay, to make that diameter circle, you need 27 number one wedges and 53 number two wedges. And and they just leave it to the bricklayer to figure out the repetition of the pattern to make an approximate circle. But obviously you're using two different sizes of wedges that aren't exactly the same to make that circle. So it ends up not being a perfect circle, but it's close sure. enough. Yeah. But you can turn any diameter circle with the right combination of bricks. And the skilled masons, they can look at it as they're laying the bricks and they can tell you whether it's turning too fast or too slow. Huh. And they can look at the face of the bricks. So there's a condition called hacking that if the lining is turning too slow, you don't get a smooth surface on the inside face, the working face of the lining. You actually get kind of steps and it looks like a sawtooth pattern. They call that hacking. So that a good mason can see this happening and adjust the ratio accordingly. I derailed Mark. He was trying to systematically go from the floor to the brick to the walls. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I think while we're talking about brick, I guess... I want to get a little bit into how are the bricks uh, supported? Are they sitting on the floor? So that depends on the vessel again. So depending on the height of the vessels, I've done linings where I've actually set the sidewall bricks on the floor. Or I have also done vessels where I've set the bricks on the shell 
and then put the floor on the ID of the sidewall bricks. That depends size and such. Oh, yeah, the basketball. If, you, if your cylinder's too tall, eventually you want to have some kind of expansion joint there, right? Oh, uh, yeah. We're going to have to take expansion joints into consideration, and we're also going to have to take into consideration whether you want to put brick shelves in. So if your vessel gets too large and you have the built-in ability to be able to maintain sections of it without having to take everything out to fix something, say you have a problem at the bottom, you don't want to have to go in and repair something right at the bottom uh, without taking everything out, then you plan for brick shelves, which are little shelves that support bricks above a certain level. And if you're going to do expansion joints, you would put an expansion joint at a brick shelf. But you don't necessarily have to have the shelves. I wouldn't put a shelf in a 10-foot tall unit, for instance, but I might put an expansion joint halfway up. That's going to depend, on the again, on the operating temperature and the thermal expansion of the bricks. But typically anything over about 8 feet I might consider putting expansion joints in. So that thermal expansion data is available for whatever brick product you choose? And Yes, it is. And the brick manufacturers have all of that data available, and they can actually do the calculations for you if you need, and they can tell you how frequently to put in the expansion joints. So do those shelves need to be protected somehow? They do. So typically what I do is I'll take the shelf and I'll wrap it, have it wrapped in a thin layer of ceramic fiber paper. The shelf doesn't come all the way out to the working face. Uh-huh. So typically you'll put a notch cut in the brick. In the industry, they call those pistol cuts. So if you ever hear the term pistol cut, it's just a notch cut out of the brick so that it will either sit down over the shelf or you can sometimes find these sitting, the notch cuts on the brick underneath the shelf. Typically you want to do it over though because you don't want all of the weight of the bricks above the shelf somehow resting on a little lip of brick underneath. But it's really that sensitive that you need to do something to protect it. If you just had a straight brick and so you had this little gap, thickness of the shelf, and that shelf was exposed directly to the process temperature, it would be an issue. It would just take that temperature straight out to the shell and would it cause actual temperatures on the shelf? Yeah, they'll act as cold fingers no matter what. Anytime you put a shelf in, if you do a, a an IR scan of the shell, you'll find that, actually, they're not cold fingers, they're conduits. You'll find a hot spot around that shelf. Yeah. yeah. So these expansion joints, so you got your shelf, and maybe you've got an expansion joint just below the shelf that ones I've seen are typically like a half inch wide. What do you need to do to those expansion joints? Are there, because it's, that goes all the way back to the shell, right? That gap, um, that half inch gap. The, the ways to mitigate that, again, I can sometimes put, a notch cut in the brick and have a torturous path expansion joint. If I have a multi-layer or multi, yeah, a multi-brick lining, so I have an insulating brick and a hot face brick, I'll put the expansion joints, I'll offset them in the insulating layer by a couple of bricks from the expansion joint in the dense layer. That way the gas path doesn't line up. Hmm. Then you'll have a slip joint in the middle between the two layers. But if you have a single brick lining, sometimes there's just no way around it. You're just going to put in a ceramic fiber expansion joint that goes through through the thickness. And what I'll typically do in those situations is I'll tell the masons, is take some mortar and smear it over the face of the fiber so that you get a little bit less gas flow right there at the face. And it, it helps to prevent the fiber from getting sucked into the furnace so easily. Okay. And that's, I was getting ready to ask during outages, do you typically restuff those joints, replace fiber that's fallen out, that kind of thing? Or you can, yes. You have to be careful. Fiber will transfer a load as easily as a brick will. It's compressible to about 50% of its thickness. So when you're first installing a lining, you can put the fiber, you, you basically lay a fiber donut in, and then you can keep bricking on top of that. Now, obviously, the weight of the brick is going to compress that fiber, and it it will compress down to some degree, 40% of the fiber thickness, something like that. You could use a rigid board, which they typically have a starch or a silicate binder in them that'll burn out. So that gives you some strength as you're building your vessel, and then you have a compressible product once it sees heat. 
But if you just use blanket, it's going to compress when you construct it. How much do the bricks grow relative to the steel? You're talking about, I'm hearing a, an expansion ring every five feet. That sounds like so it, well, if the bricks are mortared in place. Are they moving throughout that five feet so that all of the differential? Then you are. That expansion joint? The bricks and the shell will actually move independently of each other. They'll grow independently. The shell will grow one amount. The bricks will grow another. But remember that the growth of the bricks is actually about an order of magnitude lower than the ex thermal expansion rate of the steel or the shell. The shell's not getting as hot as the bricks, right? The shell's not getting as hot as the brick, but the, the brick actually has a lower expansion coefficient than the shell does. So a lot of times they are fairly close in the amount of growth. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes they are different and it's only going to be close if it's designed perfectly so that Correct. the temperature of the shell back there and the brick does what it's supposed to do. And so if you have a failure in the brick, you know, for whatever reason, like some erosion, it cracks or spalling. Now it sounds like your shell is going to grow a whole lot more and then you're going to have a more massive mismatch in thermal expansion, yes. is that right? Yes, that's correct. Whenever you see a hot spot, you'll actually see the shell will start to bulge. Now that's not just from the shell overheating, but that's also from the thermal expansion growth of the shell in that localized spot. And you'll get a permanent bulge in the shell there. Why doesn't it suck back in when it cools down, when you shut the thing down? Well, steel not being as robust at these temperatures. <laughs> it just you, it uh, yields and then it's permanently deformed. That, that's right. Huh. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna continue on with our tour of the unit. What kind of refractory would you use on the roof of something like this? Assuming you've got a a reduction down in size to a, an outlet duct or a stack. Yeah. So the roofs are always a problem. The roofs being, if you have a flat roof, you really can't hang bricks up there. You can use hangers. There are anchor systems to hang the bricks on the roof, and you can do that. If it's not a very large diameter vessel, it's feasible to hang a brick up there. If the vessel gets too large, I'll typically start to deviate from using bricks on the roof, and I'll either go to a, a gunite or a castable system, a monolithic system, or I'll use a ceramic fiber. That's going to depend on gas velocity and whether there's entrained particulates in the gas stream. When you talk about ceramic fiber, are you talking about Pin blankets or modules or? Pin blankets or modules, either one would work up there. The modules may be a little bit more resilient over time because they have the expansion relief built into them that, that the blanket doesn't have. And blanket shrinks over time too, so you might open up gaps. Yeah, I know it's hard in an audio medium to do it, but can you try to describe what a ceramic fiber module is for anybody that's not familiar? When you take a ceramic fiber blanket which has a range of thicknesses from half inch all the way up to two or three inches. But typically you take a one inch blanket and then you fold it like an accordion. So you, you have many folds and then you can pin those folds together with an anchor system that goes through it. And you can put a, an anchor through the center. You can make a block that way and then put a, a hole through the center and basically use that hole with another anchor to hold it to the shell. And you do this many times around and the, uh, they basically, they'll compress them with cardboard. When they get everything in place, they'll pull the cardboard out and then the accordions will expand into each other. So you have a continuous ring of fiber that's folded back and forth up there. And fiber shrinks over time with exposure to heat because it starts as amorphous, then it becomes crystalline and the fibers themselves shrink. When that happens... And so the accordion effect of the module is such that it, it allows that shrinkage to be taken up in the system so you don't form gaps. Thank you. Good, good description. You also mentioned castables and monolithics. Is the monolithic what you just described? Monolithic is the general term. Castable is a subset of a monolithic. So monolithic, basically the term is one piece lining. I like to refer to it a lot of times as brick in a bag or brick in a box. So it starts out as a powder that, that you then mix with water. And you can apply that either by casting it like concrete with a mold, or there are gunned systems where you can shoot the moistened powder through a gun and it will stick to the wall. 
there's a form of it called plastic, which basically is like Play-Doh in a sense. It's soft, pliable form. It's just pre-mixed. And you can take that and ram it into the wall with a pneumatic ramming gun. They're gunned plastics, so you shoot little pieces of that plastic against the wall. But basically the idea is that at the end of the day, when you get this all installed, it's one continuous lining. So you don't have the joints in it like you do with a brick line. All right. Well, with that, let's take a short break for a word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Megan Oaks from BASF. As a reliability engineer, I understand firsthand many of the challenges that processing industry companies face, and I believe sharing technical resources and knowledge across the industry is vital to improving safe, sustainable, and reliable plant operations. That's why I serve as co-chair of the MTI Global Solutions Symposium. In 2024, the symposium returns to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, February 26th through the 28th. And the committee is proud to offer two keynotes featuring topics for sustainable processed industries. In addition, we have scheduled five tracks with more than 35 presentations, which focus on emerging technology, sustainability and reliability, non-metallic, bioprocessing and corrosion mechanism, and knowledge management. The event also includes our Global Solutions Marketplace, where 11 exhibit hours are available during networking reception, meals, and breaks. But limited booths remain. On behalf of the Symposium Committee, I hope you'll join us in Baton Rouge to connect and learn with some of the best in the process industry. Early bird registration is now open through January 26, 2024. To register, purchase a booth, or learn more, visit mti-global.org. MTI Symposium. So all the options that you mentioned for the roof, whether it was hanging brick or a monolithic or ceramic fiber is, it's anchored to the roof. We have to have anchors in place. Correct. And yeah. by anchors, we mean metal studs welded. It could be ceramic. I know the ceramic anchors too, yeah. but it's, it, yeah. I guess, let me, can you talk about anchors a little bit? <laughs> all right. So anchoring systems. So for bricks, you'll have basically little T's that come out and there'll be a notch in the brick and the T will slip into the brick and, and the brick literally hangs off the T. For monolithic systems, you'll see a couple of different configurations. The most common is probably the steer horn type or the, the V's. You'll see these little V's coming off the wall. The point of the V is welded to the shell. And then you'll have these tines coming out and you'll it's a lot like rebar and concrete, right? A lot like rebar and concrete. Exactly. And you'll do that at intervals and the thickness of the V is geared toward the thickness of the lining to make sure that the tips of the V are not out beyond the working face thickness that you want. Typically I shoot for about a half an inch less than the desired thickness of the lining. So let me interrupt you there for a second and ask if that anchor is within a half inch of the hot face of the lining it's getting pretty hot isn't it it does yes and one of the things we deal with there so you have to pick the right alloy because the different alloys are resistant to different temperatures if you're getting too hot for the metal alloys you have to consider going to a brick anchor system and that's just a brick being held in place with a, a c-clip on the back but going back to the metal anchor systems, commonly you'll find carbon steel anchors. You can find stainless. It's not uncommon. The most common is like a 304 stainless. But I've also used 309, 310, 316. And then there's, you go into the, the Inconels. So Inconel 600, 601, I've seen those. 601 as anchor systems. I've even installed the Hastelite anchors. So if it's just, I know there's other considerations besides temperature, but, but just based on temperature, if you go and do thermal calculations and come up with a temperature that your anchor tips are, are seeing, where would you go to figure out what metal you need? Yeah, I have the luxury of having metal yeah. arches available. I'll you say, yeah, But if you do not have a metal just available to you for consultation, pick up the phone and call Mark Cook. No. Uh, <laughs> You can go to the refractory manufacturers or the anchor manufacturers, and they can make recommendations for you. The problem with that is, is they may not know every nuance of the system. So again, if it's a simple air-fired system, they'll be able to help you out. But if you have some exotic chemical going through there, you're going to need 
better resources than the anchor manufacturers for this. So will the manufacturers be able to help you with all of the design details, like how many anchors you need, what pattern, how- Yes, they can. There, there are standard recommendations. They actually have charts and tables available. Basically, what you do is you look at the location of the refractory, so floor, sidewall, roof, and it will tell you the approximate spacing on, on those areas, depending on the thickness of the lining and the type of the line. So if you're using a dense monolithic, you might have more anchors than you would need if you're using an insulating monolithic that's much lighter weight. If you're using a four and a half inch thick lining versus a nine inch lining, you might have fewer anchors needed for the four and a half. You might actually need more. And depending on the location, so the roof, you will obviously have more anchors than you would on the sidewall. On the floor, they may not even recommend anchors. I've put floors in with no anchoring at all. You mentioned two component lining before, meaning let's say you had two different monolithics. How do you handle that with anchors? So what you do is you weld threaded studs to the shell and you put a little bit of tape over the threads out so far, out, out of the tip. You can gun the lining or cast it around those studs. And then once you've got that cut back and cleaned up to the right thickness, you come and you clean up the threaded studs, the tips, and you have the bees then that are welded onto nuts and you can thread those nuts onto the studs. Typically I would tack weld them so that they don't try to walk back off. And those V's are, I should have mentioned earlier, it's important when you install the anchors because some V's go vertically and then the next V over should go horizontally. So you want to stagger the direction of your V's so that the expansion of the metal in the anchors doesn't cause a stress plane in the refractory that causes the refractory to crack. So you have to be careful to make sure that your anchor tips are not aligned with each other. You reduce the stress in the lining. This sounds a little bit complicated already, and we haven't even gotten to nozzles and manways. So you're going to have internals going on in here. And how are you going to deal with that? And especially with the thermal expansion where you've got these fixed protrusions. So the protrusions are another issue. And they're a challenge from an anchor installation standpoint. You have to make sure that the anchors are installed again and in the right direction. And I've seen many manways that had cracks in them because the anchor tips ended up lining up and it, it just put a stress in the lining and caused it to crack. So you have to be very careful around those. Protrusions, a lot of like nozzles are typically not a problem. It's just it's more the manways that are typically the issue. So how are they handled though? Do you, does the refractory wrap inside of a manway? Yes. The refractory will wrap around for a monolithic lining. You basically put a radius on the refractory and then wrap it around into the manway. Mm-hmm. And the same if there's bricks, there's manway bricks and hustle bricks. Yeah. Yes. Bricks, you're looking at, again, keyed construction and you'll cut miters on the bricks so that they'll interact with the sidewall bricks or so. In the case of the bricks, they're called bullseye rings. So you build compression rings from the nozzle penetrations and that gives you structural support. And then your sidewall bricks are built off of those compression rings. You said you wanted to keep it simple. This is getting complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Even your most simple air-fired heater is going to have nozzles and... Yeah, so nozzles and air-fired heaters are are usually a a little bit more simplistic than like a manway would be. For instance, if I have to have a nozzle in there that I want to put a thermocouple in or a thermal well through, I only need a two or three inch hole, two or three inch diameter hole, and... Typically, I can either have a pipe in there that I can cast or gunite around, or I can core drill a hole through a brick lining to get that pipe through there to line up with the nozzle. I want to align the bricks with that nozzle if I can, the mortar joints, because I want to drill through a mortar joint. I don't want to drill through the center of a brick because drilling through the center of the brick makes the brick much weaker. But if I can drill through the edge of the brick through a mortar joint, then I have a a nice meaty piece of brick on either side of that. If I have a larger nozzle, 
wear a brick lining. I'm going to actually buy some real tight tapered bricks and I'm going to build a bullseye around that nozzle. Typically, you would you probably wouldn't turn a bullseye around anything smaller than a four inch diameter hole, but it could be done. But I'd, I'd probably just core drill that. And the other thing that you'll find are special shaped bricks. So you buy larger bricks or bricks with curves on the back face to match the radius of curvature of the shell. And you can have a hole actually prefabbed inside that nozzle block. So when you get to one of these nozzles, you just set that nozzle in place. You have to level it up with the hole and brick around it. That's the easiest way to do it. I think I'm going to change directions a little bit and ask about dry out. I think that's that's a topic we at least need to touch on. What materials require a dry out and what general advice do you have about that? So I usually recommend that you do a dry out on any kind of a brick or a monolithic lining. The only ones that don't require a dry out are the ceramic fiber linings. So you do dry out, if it was all brick, you would do a dry out? You still have to dry the mortar. So the, the mortar has water in it. You have to set the mortar. There are air setting mortars. So there are systems that don't require as much dry out. But I still like to do a slow application of heat to them because when you install a brick lining, even if it's an air setting mortar, it takes a, a little bit of a set at room temperature. But when you heat it up and everything expands, the mortar is somewhat compressible and changeable, and it will develop its final strength at operating temperature. So it's best to let the lining slowly heat up to that point let the mortar take its final set shape and then go ahead from there. And plus you get the water of, so the water in the mortar will actually, when you heat it up, actually drives out toward the shell instead of into the hot face of the brick. So you've got to allow that steam that's generated time to get out. You wouldn't think there's much of it, but water expands a lot when you heat it up. And if you've never seen a, a steam spall in a brick lining, it's not a pretty sight. I always recommend continuing to do the, the dry out, even on a brick lining. What about repairs? Let's say you have a, a small repair to ca a castable lining. Maybe you're doing a one foot by one foot area or something like that. Same thing. Would you go through a full dry out? I have a tendency to use user-friendly monolithics or castables for repairs. So typically when you use those, they, there are newer systems out there, especially like the colloidal silica systems. All you have to do is air dry it and you can put the heat right on it. You'll see a lot of the manufacturers have their castables and their gunites. They'll have this plus designation around them. And that plus, what that means is they've added polyester fibers to the mix. And when it heats up, those polyester fibers shrink which creates little air channels through the, the material, the ceramic, and the steam just migrates out those channels and you don't build up enough pressure in there to cause any problems. So dry out of a repair, if it's a real small repair, you probably don't need to worry about it. But you have to be careful of your material selection. Yeah, I guess uh, along that same line, there is just an effort on manufacturers' parts to refine their dry out recommendations for some products. Uh, I think that's a trend where they're starting to maybe do some testing and become a little less conservative on products in an effort to meet customers' needs. That's where a lot of this plus technology has come from. The general idea in the refractory industry is that you can give the recommendation on drying curves and nine times out of 10, the customer is not going to be able to completely stick to that dry out curve. So the advent of the plus technology, the polyester drying or fiber technology allows you to deviate from that a little bit. They'd probably not be very happy with me for saying that, but it makes the, the materials a little bit more forgiving and less sensitive to the heat up. But that again, that being said, there are limitations. If they recommend that you don't heat over 100 degrees C per hour, you probably can't heat at 500 degrees C per hour just by slamming the burner on and, and heating it up if you have a big repair or a big lining that has to be done. You're still going to need to stick to the more conservative, somewhat conservative numbers. And what does that mean 
a lot of times for you. Do you, do you guys bring in an external company with heat sources and, and they do it that way or? That's typically my recommendation because most of the burners used on the units are not geared to run at low fire or ramp up slowly. When you're talking about multi-million BTU units, they don't do a very good job of heating up a, a refractory lining from ambient up to, say, 300 degrees C just to let that physical water evaporate out slowly. The burners are off and on. And you can get there part of the way with the pilots if you've got a pilot system available. But if not, my recommendation typically is to hire a contractor to come in and they have burners appropriately sized. They can stick them in. They can heat it up. They can dry it out at the proper rate. And they can give you a printout at the end of the day showing that they've heated it up at a certain rate. All this talk of repair is making me wonder a little bit about inspection and how you need to do a repair. Or can you talk about thermal scans and pros, cons, limitations? I love infrared scans on the shelves. Typically recommend that you should do them in the wee hours of the morning before the sun comes up. That way the shell doesn't have any sun heating effects from the day. So you go out at three, four o'clock in the morning and you do your scans and you can detect uh, a good scan. If you've got a monolithic lining, you'll see where every anchor is because they're heat conduits. You'll see where all your brick shelves are, but you'll also see where your hot spots are. And you can tell whether you've got a crack running through the lining because you've got a long, an oblong hot spot, or if you've just got a, a blown out section, so you might have a little cylinder or a little round spot on the shell that shows a hot spot there. But you do have to be careful with the IR scans. Mark and I have talked about this in the past. The color coding on the picture that you get doesn't necessarily represent whether you've got a major problem or not. I was just going to ask you, all the red spots are what you have to worry about, right? All the red spots are what you have to worry about, <laughs> except from the technician. When you know that the technician dialed that color in at red because he was just trying to show a difference, but there's only a five degree difference between the red spot and the blue spot, then that it's... It's not really a problem. The other interesting thing for me on those thermal scans is we've had a building might scan a, a unit and then scan it six months later and it heated up a hundred degrees and they, they get concerned and, and send it to us and they start talking and you go, what was the ambient temperature? What was the wind speed? There could be a lot of variation depending on those kinds of factors. Uh, wind speed alone can increase or decrease the temperature of the shell, depending on how the refractory thickness was calculated. Like I typically will model, whenever I design linings, I'll model it with different wind speeds. I ask the site, what is your average daily wind speed in this month? And your average daily temperature, and I'll run multiple models of the shell, looking at the different temperatures and the operating conditions externally. Now, that's one advantage of having an external insulation is that it does mask some of that stuff, but I don't recommend doing that to protect against the element. You can just put a simple rain shield up a lot of times and, and gain the benefits of getting the air stagnant around the vessel without having to put the insulation on. And this sounds like a really sensitive inspection technique that's giving you a lot of good information. Is, is that your main go-to for inspection rather than compared to an internal? I would love it to be, but unfortunately, it's not typically my main inspection technique. Typically, it's when my phone rings and the plant calls up and says, we have a problem. We see flames shooting out of the shell at the, on the third level. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's when you know it's not going to be a good day. Right. <laughs> now, fortunately, that doesn't happen very often. But a lot of times I'll get calls and say, I've got the shell is bulging in this spot. I haven't run a thermal scan on it. We don't have an IR camera, but I'm seeing shell deformation. Can you come and take a look? Or I'll find out from a down-fired burner or something like that. We're seeing pieces of refractory in a downstream location. They're not supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. Should we shut down and, and go in and actually take a look? Fortunately, we've got techniques now to, to inspect, visually inspect the refractory from the inside without actually having to always go in. With the drone technologies and, and the remote cameras, 
even the the GoPros are great. They put them on a pole and stick them in. A lot of times you can see what you need to see without having to break the plane. I would love IR to be the way to go, but typically it's not the reason that I get the call asking for an inspection. And of course we have the planned maintenance too. So every so often the plant comes down and, and they'll make the plan. We're going to inspect this unit at that time. So we, we know from historical data how frequently that we have to inspect the unit. You have your intervals for different types of equipment. Correct. When you're doing an internal visual inspection, I just want to get your thoughts on a couple like common degradation mechanisms that, that somebody might see. So one would be like cracks in a monolithic. What's your criteria there? What, when are you worried about it? When aren't you? So first rule of thumb, cracks in monolithic are normal. You should see cracks in a monolithic. Imagine a monolithic lining. It's one big lining. When it's cold, it's not in the same condition it was in when it was running because it's now shrunk down because it's cold. So the stress of shrinkage creates cracks in the monolithic. You should see those cracks. And my rule of thumb is on about a three foot by three foot grid pattern in the lining. If you see a lot more than that, then you might have an issue. Or if those cracks are not hairline cracks, meaning you might be able to put a piece of paper in them, but if those cracks are an eighth of an inch or larger, then you could also have a problem. Typically, you never try to fill those cracks with anything, though. Now, if the crack is a half an inch, you're probably looking at having to tear something out. But if you've only got eighth inch or smaller cracks, just leave them. Just ignore them. They're not a problem unless, again, you've got spalling, material falling off the wall. Or you've got something that is a lot more than this three by three grid pattern. Yeah. What about you mentioned spalling a little bit? When some light spalling might be okay. When is spalling a condition that needs to be dealt with? So, for the benefit of the listener, spalling is when you have a crack that runs parallel to the working face of the lining and you actually have a piece that peels off and falls out. So, it's like taking a scoop out of the refractory and peeling it out. And spalling, again, it becomes an issue if you start to expose anchor tips, like in a monolithic lining. So if you're exposing anchors, then that's a problem because the anchors aren't going to be rated to run at operating at the furnace operating temperature. Generally, though, I've run systems that had maybe 50% of their original lining thickness left. I'll limp them along until we can get in and do a proper repair. But yeah, spalling can be a major problem. See, what are you looking for visual inspection-wise on fiber modules? So fiber modules, you're looking for shrinkage. So if they start to get to the point where you're seeing gaps forming between the modules, that's problematic. You're going to have to start looking at a repair. You can also abrasion or wear of the lining. So Again, you're looking at the lining thickness. So if, if the modules are down 50% of their original thickness, they're not going to function the way they were originally designed. You're going to have to go in and do repairs. There are other failure mechanisms, like you can look for uh, failed anchors in module systems. I was just going to say, that's the one that unfortunately we deal with occasionally is modules that are loose. They're not bonded to the wall. That, that's very common. Because yeah. a lot of times we'll use like a stud gun system to weld a stud, the anchor stud in for those modules. And if the shell wasn't prepped right, that stud weld may not hold. And then all of a sudden you've got a module that's just floating in space. Yeah. You could do an internal. It could all look good. You button it up and then the whole thing could just fall down. After exactly. <laughs> yes. And I, I've had that happen before. Typically though, the one night, one thing I've discovered with modules is that if you've got loose anchors, you'll typically have a gap that forms between the module and the shell. So if you can do an IR scan on those vessels, you'll see a field of warm shell where the anchors have failed. Yeah. So you'll also see with IR scans, you'll see the anchors that are welded on because you'll see the little dots on the shell where you have a higher temperature. If an anchor has failed, you won't see those dots anymore because you've lost the contact with the shell. So really providing you more information than an internal would. 
for the sake of completeness, can we just do brick real quick in terms of yeah. uh, what you look for in a visual inspection with brick? Visual inspection with brick, again, it's a lot of the same failure modes. You can have cracking, you can have corrosion. So you'll see swelling of the bricks. The, they'll get the soft texture on them and they'll get crumbly. You get spalling. Spalling in bricks is a, it's a thermomechanical method that has to do with the temperature differential from the hot face to the brick to the cold face of the brick. And it sets up a high stress tensile field in the center of the brick that can peel a layer of the working face of the brick off like an onion. So that's typically the main problem with brick is spalling. That's actually your, going to be your highest removal rate failure method. Yeah. You had some as well where uh, these were just panels surrounded by ceramic fiber modules that the, the anchors failed. And so the panels would be loose. I don't know how common of a failure mode that is, but it's, we've got a bunch of the same furnace that have a problem with that. So, so you had brick panels surrounded by ceramic fiber. Yeah. Where the burners were, there were brick panels just right where the burner was, where there was impingement concern uh, yeah. and then around it, the rest of it can all be modules. Mm -hmm. But the way the anchors were designed, they, they're getting a little too hot and failing over the years. Okay. So we're just systematically having to replace all these panels. I have to say, I'm really glad we kept it to the simplest case example. <laughs> <laughs> Think about how many components there are in just the simple process fired heater example. And and obviously there's so many more complexities in real applications and implants and incinerators and just tons more. <laughs> it's a very deep topic. Yeah, refractory goes very deep. Yeah, yeah. And it's remarkable that for all of the real expertise needed to do this well and successfully, that there isn't more expertise within process companies. Yeah, and, and there, there are not very many new ceramic engineers graduating nowadays either, especially engineers wanting to go into refractories. They go into the structural ceramics or the high-tech ceramics, but they, they view refractories as being old technology. We are mixing dirt, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, I, I always tell people this, just remember, if, if uh, ceramics are so bad, why do metals always want to become them? <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jay. This was a great conversation and you packed a lot of knowledge into it. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of the Corrosion Chronicles. Join us each month as we continue our conversations with subject matter experts discussing materials-related challenges and successes at the process industries. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information about the Materials Technology Institute, visit us online at mti-global.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.